the other interesting thing is, so like, let's assume an ODA is like a platoon. Um, everybody in an ODA is basically like a, it's a platoon, whatever their platoon comparison is on steroids. I spent a good amount of time at Bragg just because that's where all the training for the Q course and selection is. Welcome to How I Embraced the Suck, a podcast where you get to hear from veterans what life in the military is really like. I am your host, Walt, and before we start, you should know that I do not censor the show in any way. You have been warned. Right. Oh, shoot, dadgummit, and I always do this. <laughs> I never, I, I almost never prepare an intro, as dumb as it is. You know, I always try to have something to say, um, preferably insulting. But yeah, the better I know someone, the easier it is to insult them. So, <laughs> so cool. Part-time troll, but, full-time amateur. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Yeah. Cool. Um, let's see. Yeah, I think should be should be ready to rumble. So let's what do it. um Yeah, I I uh I'm just realizing some of the guys that interview yeah, I, I I this will all be new to me, so whatever okay. whatever you have to say. I'm excited because I've only had one other one other? I think one other officer. Okay. Um, oh God, I'm sorry. On, so yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was a struggle, but we managed to get through it. <laughs> right. The, you got to talk to somebody with the Queen's Commission. They start using yeah. big words and right, faking right. their intellect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so it's uh, it is kind of nice to get get both sides of the of the spectrum or both both viewpoints. So it should be fun. But nice. Um. Yeah. Well, today we have uh, red. A, a former green beret so i'm i'm really not uh crud i hit my losing my train of thought anyways we got <laughs> we got red today a former green beret and i'll just uh leave it at that because i am right. spacing so how's it going red <laughs> it's going good man thanks for having me yeah yeah thanks for coming on i appreciate it um yeah. this is like i was saying it's nice to have a an officer on and kind of get the the uh, elitist stand of uh, viewpoint right. on things, <laughs> no, a little more bourgeois perspective. Yes, yes please, please. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. So you were you were in the army. You you uh, didn't join until after nine eleven. But you were saying that um, that was that kind of part of why you joined the military. Yeah, that was actually the reason why. Um, I was in college. I was a sophomore in college. Uh, on 9-11 and I had, uh, I lived on the West coast. So I basically woke up to 9-11 while I was in the weight room. Um, and, uh, my hmm. mom was, my mom actually, uh, worked on the campus that I was going to school to. So I walked into her office and I actually, I thought it was like war of the worlds because, you know, when I was in elementary and high school, they're like, oh yeah, you know, when war of the worlds came out on radio or whatever, people were, you know, shitting themselves mm, because right. they thought it was real. And I'm like, this has got to be something to that effect. It just couldn't possibly happen. 
And, you know, it took probably about 12 hours for me to realize, like, this is going to change the fabric of, you know, my future and probably the rest of the United States future. And there was a bunch of, you know, patriotic, angry feelings that I had. And one thing that had kind of stuck with me is like, you know, I'd felt like I had taken advantage of the freedoms that I was, you know, receiving for very long. And I guess that was, you know, looking back at it, I, you know, being a college student, I had like a very high flutin concept of service and the military in general, but that's basically hmm. what caused me to join up and did ROTC um, and was really, really fortunate to have a lot of really good NCOs that were my instructors. Um, and my dad was an NCO as well. And so I, I, I kind of was kind of like Mowgli. I was raised by wolves, so to speak, and got into uh, active duty army after ROTC. And then just that's how my, you know, my career began was, you know, that patriotic drive that I think a lot of guys my age at that time had felt and why you kind of saw that surge of military age males joining in post 9-11. Hmm. Yeah. 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 So you, but you joined, you said 06 is when yeah, you. Yeah, I was in at 06. So, uh, 9-11 happened that mm -hmm. following year I did ROTC and then got my commission in 2006 and then got into the 101st and did my mm. thing. Yeah. Okay. So I know, I know, uh, like you were saying right around 9-11, there was a big surge of, uh, mm -hmm. guys wanting to join up by 06 had that lesson. So you, were you part of a smaller group of guys joining that was so if you if you think about it in two in let's see post 9-11 you had a large surge of um uh ncos that came in so it's, it's that's mm -hmm. actually kind mm -hmm. of an interesting it's an interesting uh observation so you have a lot of ncos that came in in, in 2001 to basically 2004 where that was like the 18 year old 18 to 24 year olds that were like you know the post 9-11 or sure. like just the right after 9-11 patriots let's call them and then uh, when you look at, oh gosh, it would have been 2004, early, early 2000, or sorry, late, late 2004 to 2006 was where you saw that surge of officers. And so that's really weird because when you look at 2016, you see a really large drop off of officers and NCOs as well, because that was their 10 year limit. And they were like, fuck this. I don't want to mm. be in the army anymore. And so there was ads or not ads. So refrad cuts that the army had made in 2016. And it was mm -hmm. a lot of those, uh, you know, it's kind of the army trying to trim the fat with those officers. Sure. And NCOs, but um, so like most of the 18 X-rays that are, well, for example, my team sergeant, and my warrant were both X-rays and we got in at the same time, but they have obviously, or sorry, we, they, we, we both basically volunteered at the same time. So mm -hmm. we, we all wanted to do it in 2002. These guys have, you know, four more years in service because of, you know, them enlisting or whatever. Sure. But we've like we both kind of grew up in the same strange generation, so that's kind of how, you know, that's kind of how the uh, the framework for when officers or when you kind of see those post nine eleven officers get into the army. Mm -hmm. Yeah, hmm. yeah. I've heard a lot of guys talk about how uh, if you joined right in that time frame, it was hard to pick your job and and whatnot just because there were they had they could pick and choose as much as they wanted just because the recruiters had so many guys signing up yeah you did so. um and and really the dudes that came in as x-rays or ended up getting um you know like combat arms mos's usually were 
doing better on the uh, aptitude tests that they were giving them, which was also really interesting mm. because most of my peers are, um, you know, dudes that were a little bit younger than me that I served with even in the 101st were uh, either finishing their degrees or already had degrees. And the only thing that was really, you know, uh, differentiating us was the fact that I'd stayed in college for a couple years longer, just did a different route. Like there was very little mm. social and obviously intellectual differences. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so you said you went to the Screaming Eagles. What was, was that, uh, by choice you wanted to be airborne or? Yeah. So I, um, I was, I, when I finished, uh, my third year, my junior year in college, you kind of get like a wish list. And, um, mm. I was stupid and I put the field artillery within my top five. And at that time they were hurting so bad for field artillery officers that they just gave it to you if you were in your top five. So I had like infantry, engineer, armor, and artillery. And they're like, Oh, you're getting artillery. It's like shit. Um, <clears throat> and my, my first two choices were Bragg and, um, Campbell, which was the 82nd and 101st. Mm -hmm. And, um, I got the 101st. And so I'd wanted the 101st and I didn't necessarily want artillery, but I was happy with what I got. And so I ended up doing there. And I, I, um, I knew that Campbell, uh, you know, was only airborne in history. They weren't jumping out of airplanes, but I actually went through airborne school my um, sophomore year in college. Mm. So for ROTC, um, if you want, your summers can be spent going to army schools. And so I went to airborne school my sophomore year. And then my junior year, I went to pre-scuba uh, with first group. And then um, my your senior year, well, your junior and junior year you also do like this summer camp which is really stupid and then obviously your senior summer you're commissioned and you're not in college anymore but mm. yeah so i ended mm. up doing that i was already airborne um and then i was in the 101st uh as a field artillery guy the first so i was there for gosh just about three years and of those three years 15 months was in iraq and i split my time mm. in iraq between being a fso for an infantry company mm -hmm. um we were just in a small little combat outpost across from the tigris river into crit um and it was literally just the company and we had a small sf team that was attached to us and we we basically got to run our own battle space which was super unique and pretty fun and then my other half i went down to lsa anaconda and i got put in a firing battery as a gun platoon leader and kind of did the generic field artillery thing mm. because we weren't shooting cannons at the time in Iraq though. I was basically an infantry platoon leader again. Uh, so that was kind of fun. And I, I got a lot of exposure to kind of the non field artillery side of everything. Mm, um, okay. Met a lot of SF dudes uh, and kind kind of did the light infantry thing while I was there. And I, I knew what, I knew I'd always wanted to do it. Uh, my dad was a special forces medic, the NCOs in ROTC. One of them was a Delta force sergeant major. The other one was from Ranger regiment. And so I knew like, I wanted to be among that community of people. Um, and so I knew coming back from Iraq, um, you know, when I'd gotten back to Fort Campbell, I just, I, I wanted to be part of that community. And so I, uh, put my application in to be to go to um, assessment selection, uh, got selected, and then went through the pipeline uh, for the special for special forces qualification course. Hmm. Yeah, is that? Um, yeah, I haven't really. I I read about that kind of stuff as a kid, but is that mm -hmm. is that the same as Green Beret? 
talking yeah, about this the, the same the thing. Yeah, class or the, the qualification rather. Okay. Yeah. So so when you go to selection, that's basically like the test to see if you're like trainable and okay, if you're even sure. worth if if you're even like worthwhile, right? And so it's two weeks. Uh, they do a bunch of physical and mental tests, and then the last week they have um, team week, which is. Uh, you're in a, you know, obviously a team environment and you're trying to move some sort of contraption or some sort of weighted device, a specific distance while trying to manage your team. And usually they have like a three wheeled, you know, Jeep or some sort of like water can carry where you have to hoist it on these heavy ass metal bars. And so you've got to manage personalities and motivate your dudes to get to a specific point. And the nice part is, is they do it across enlisted and officer ranks. Mm-hmm. Um, to kind of gauge, you know, w- what type of personality you are, and then also to see if you're worth throwing into the Q course. And then the Q course has its own pipeline. That's almost a year long, depending on what MOS you are. And then, you know, each specialty kind of has their own flavor, but you go through a lot of the same unconventional warfare block checks for language and um, uh, consolidated training like Sears School and stuff like that. Mm, okay. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah, that's interesting. You mentioned that they that they mix ranks. Um, I've known or I've heard that uh, in the special special forces uh, community, there's a lot a lot less emphasis placed on ranking, a lot more camaraderie. So it's it's interesting that from the start they're they're kind of uh, embracing that. Yeah, you really, you really, you know, I mean, when you're at selection, you're just a number. Um, And the only, the only people that really know that you're an officer off the bat are the instructors. Mm -hmm. It becomes kind of apparent if you've been in the army for long enough, you can basically just look at somebody, you know, tell how old they are and kind of tell their personality. Sure. Um, Sure. And the, the nice part is though, is because you don't have rank, you don't have a name and you are a number, nobody can kind of you know, pull bullshit with anybody else. And then Mm. you end up, you know, you end up, once you get to team week, since it's almost all over, you're, you and your students are basically just moving towards a common goal. And you're not really, you don't care if the student's an x-ray or if he's a senior NCO or if he's an officer, you're just trying to do the work. And parts of uh, the Q course are like that too. Language, usually you're on a last name or first name basis with most of your fellow students. And it really Mm -hmm. doesn't get too wild until when you're using rank until really close to the end of the training. So you can kind of better define what your roles are. And that's been, that's Mm. been the interesting thing in, in that community is, um, you know, a good team or a good relationship. The, the relationship you have with the guys is, is it's predicated off of your job, not necessarily like what rank you are. And, you know, because you're the captain, you're, you know, you're in charge of, planning the overall picture and enabling your NCOs to succeed in the mission. You know, it's Mm -hmm. not, you, you, you have a part to play in, you know, in this whole dynamic and, and you aren't the dynamic. Like a lot of times the army kind of puts the emphasis on platoon leaders or um, company commanders. So it's a, it's a nice thing because you have, you know, the backbone of the military kind of, you know, being the backbone in that team environment. Hmm. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> wow. Totally lost it. <clears throat> you're saying. <Right. laughs> yeah, I'm sounding really, really intelligent today. Um, no, you were. <laughs> I'm obviously not officer material. <laughs> um, You'd be all right. <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, right up to general. Right. Um, 
no yeah and then also the value that's what i was thinking the value you bring your your value isn't based on your rank but on the skills and and what you're bringing to the table yeah right versus, you're not yeah yeah and it, hmm. that's the funny thing too is you know as a pl it's it, it everybody kind of tells you as a platoon leader in an infantry company you know everything you know that happens or fails that happen falls on you and you feel that way as an officer on a team but at the same hmm. time like you everybody has buy-in on the team like you know uh, it, everybody in that environment plans something uh, mm-hmm. whereas in an infantry platoon it's you and your platoon sergeant maybe your squad leaders you know you're planning movement or whatever but you you have to have buy-in from your guys when you're planning missions or when you're uh you know honestly just painting the future of what your team needs to look like and it, it, the best mm-hmm. you know i think the best explanation you can do is you know you're kind of middle management and these guys you know work with you to you know move your business or move your team you know towards whatever goals they have it it, it it's nice because it is a really dynamic environment and mm-hmm. you can, if you have the right personalities uh, for the team and you manage, manage them right as the team leader, it, I mean, it's, you can have a really fun uh, time, you know, just being a, you know, a shitty little captain on a, on a team. <laughs> did, yeah. Okay. So did you ever, did that, um, a level of allowed camaraderie ever uh, negatively impact um, a decision you had to make, you know, where, no. where maybe you got, maybe the guys and you got more chippy back or something in a no. negative way. You know, bit. I've, I've always, I, I'm maybe, I don't know if it's like a brag or what it is, but Fort Bragg. like, yeah, right. <laughs> now there's, there's always, there's always, um, I don't know. You always have guys that do get a little bit chippy, but mm-hmm. you, uh, you, if through like leadership, you kind of, you don't teach them like you, you build your comfort zone between like a time and a place. And I've never had a time where I've had dudes that have, have kind of crossed the line with kind of like insubordination. Uh, and that's because the conversation I have with my team sergeant or my warrant or the senior dudes on the team is, you know, I've kind of set that boundary of like, you know, mm. where I, where I stand in that relationship. Sure. And sure. it's not like, it's not the, because everybody's always been like, oh, I'm not your fucking friend. Like, this is how I do. And that's definitely not me. Like, my team sergeant and I aren't friends, but like, that dude, that dude's like my brother, right? And so he mm-hmm. and I don't like go out and drink on the weekend. Like, we don't hang out a lot, but like, you know, when, when the uniform comes on or when we deploy or when we're, you know, drilling together, like, you know, we, I have a relationship just like family with him. And maybe that's probably the best, you know, comparison is. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not always doing stuff with, you know, your extended family or your brother or your cousins, but like the relationship you have with them when you meet back up, it's like you never miss a beat. Mm-hmm. So that's how yeah. it is with a lot of those dudes. And that's probably the closest thing too is, you know, even when, you know, like they're tying your boots together or they're zip tying, you know, all your shit to your bag. Like it's never one of those things where, you know, it's out of disrespect, like you know, when I was in the infantry, every time I, every time, you know, dudes would play jokes on you, you realize it's like, they're doing this because they love you, not because they hate you. Like you can right. kind of feel that vibe. And I, I've been fortunate enough to not to have that, um, you know, ever happen to me. I've seen it happen with some dudes and on, you know, to counter that, I've also seen dudes that have gotten too friendly with dudes on their team and they've had to make some really shitty calls and it's kind of you know, imploded on the team and it's, mm. it does become kind of a, a fine line to walk for some personalities, but you know, I think the, 
I don't honestly don't know what like the answer to it is because I've been thankful enough to have it happen organically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. What? Um, oh, crud! I need to write these questions down. <laughs> um, uh, you were talking about. Oh yeah, yeah, the camaraderie, um, or just the the relationships you've had. Yeah. Um, now that you're out, you're still in the reserves, but now that you're out of the regular army, has that um have those relationships persisted especially in this day and age where it's so easy to stay connected remotely um or or was that kind of a situation where in the moment you're just super tight you're relying on each other and then once you separate ways um yeah i've looser? i always it's it's almost like kind of a parental thing as as bad as a comparison as that is so mm-hmm. Most of the guys that I had a good relationship with, the 101st, um, I keep in touch with on Facebook, um, and we chat every now and again, and if they ever need anything, I'm always there to kind of have a conversation with them. Um, mm, sure. I've got, I've got a couple medics that I, you know, that I talk to on kind of a bi-monthly basis. And then, uh, there's a guy that just got commissioned as a finance officer that asked for a recommendation, which uh, I, you know, I, I loved to, to be able to do that for guys. So it's, yeah, it was, I, you know, I, I kind of watch them as they grow, even though I may not like, uh, speak to them directly. Like I'm always kind of stalking them on Instagram or Facebook to see them, you know, grow up like I, I guess a parent does. And sure. then yeah, yeah. the dudes that I had on my first team, um, you know, I, I keep, I keep in touch with, there's one commander that I had that, um, was my company commander when I was in uh, seventh group that I probably talked to you know, once a month to check in let him know how I'm doing and, you know, kind of thank him for his guidance. So it's, it, it's, um, yeah, the, the relationships are still there and they're still lasting. Um, but for the most part, you know, I've, I don't see, I don't personally see a lot of, a lot of dudes where I am, uh, outside of like the guys that I'm currently working with, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's, I mean, it's kind of weird as an officer because you you're you I feel like you don't build that relationship like you do like NCO to NCO or enlisted guy to enlisted guy you know you always have like sure you know you were you were in truck 1 if you were the O but the relationship in truck 1 is you know the gunner and the driver and then the you know the dude in the back like those guys are a lot tighter than normally then they'll be with then the officer mm. sitting in the truck sure. and it was like you know i keep in touch with my dudes in my truck but you know doc and the gunner were best friends and they were in the same uh containerized housing unit and they played you know guitar hero together all the time and so it's like you know those dudes are those dudes are brothers i'm basically just like the weird dad that right watches them and yeah has to <laughs> and embarrasses them and all yeah exactly questions. right yeah it always gets them lost in the truck or whatever <laughs> Oh. Um, did you deploy just Iraq or no, I went to Iraq for 15 months. That was my first deployment. Okay. Um, and that was when Petraeus was there. So we were like the 15 month surge. And so we mm. got told, uh, like right before we left, we're like, Oh yeah, we're just going to tack on another three months to deployment. And I was like, ah, whatever, 15 months, no big deal. And like thinking about being gone for 15 months now, it's like, hell no. Like it's, it's, it sounds terrible. So did that. Um, and then when I was in special forces in seventh group, uh, I did one month in Afghanistan and they were tearing our fire base down. 
so I we all dipped out of there pretty quick and then mm. went to Central and South America, did a little bit of time in uh, Colombia and El Salvador and Honduras and Guatemala. I got to see a lot of that. So I was one of the few SF guys that was lucky enough to do most of my deployments uh, outside of a combat zone initially, and then just went to South America and got to do a bunch of counter drug stuff. And I got a really unique kind of insight into a lot of the other shit that happens, you know, that was happening outside of the war on terror, which was, you, you know, unique mm. and fun. Sure. Um, and then I got out of, I, so I left, uh, my, the team environment and I got put on a staff job for about two years up at special forces command, uh, during the ISIS crisis or whatever you want to call it in Iraq. And so I got to see everything at a strategic level and see how all the groups operate and see what was really going on, you know, globally, which was, Mm. it it was terrible. Like it was genuinely painful, but it was very eye opening at the same time because it showed you like, you know, this is what the whole enterprise is doing as a whole, you know, as a whole, which was amazing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Got out of active duty, got into, um, you know, the part-timer thing. And then did a deployment in Africa during the height of COVID, uh, which was great because nobody in Africa gave two shits about COVID. Um, oh, okay. And it was like, you you show up to Africa and everybody's got a mask on and you're getting laughed at. And you're like, you know, what? why are you laughing? And they're like, bro, this is Africa. We've got bigger problems than COVID. I was like, <laughs> sure. fair enough. So we, we went up there uh, and I went to Niger and uh, got to spend some time at a base where uh, a couple years ago, some Green Berets died. And so it was a tense situation for a few months. And then once we uh, had built some good relationships with the uh, Nigerian military and, you know, saw what we were kind of up against, it, it, it got really interesting. We got to, I got to spend a lot of time with the French Foreign Legion. I got a lot of really interesting, uh, unique experiences in a, quite honestly, like a very austere, at times terrifying place that most, I think most people would, would not mm. want to imagine being in, but it was a lot of fun. Sure. Yeah. Oh huh, yeah. That's Yeah. Both, uh, that is interesting because Africa and then, like you're saying, South America, the the war on terror takes so much bandwidth in the news yeah. and everything that that that's. I mean, I I don't know that it's mentioned much. So right, but huh. if you if you mm-hmm. you know when you dig if you dig you know a few feet deep you see all the stuff that's going on in Mexico and you see the mm-hmm. you know how crazy the cartels are there and the amount of um, you know people being displaced out of Central America. And you're like, oh shit, you know, there's it's it's pretty wild, and especially Honduras, or how wild it can get. And then you go to Africa, and it, it honestly, I think it's just because it's not sexy, right? Like nobody really cares that you know five or six French people were killed at a giraffe park in Africa, right? But when you're there, it's like holy shit, like these are the only other white people in this country, and like they're actively being hunted by this, you know, mm. ISIS terrorist organization, and these people. I mean, it's like you know, you you when you're there or when you kind of see it firsthand, you kind of get the context of it. And it's like, Oh damn, this is genuinely terrifying, but it's right. It's, it's definitely interesting too. Cause you can, you know, most people or Americans especially look at like, you know, what conflict are we in or what are we looking at in terms of conflict globally? And all we see now is, you know, maybe Ukraine and in the past Afghanistan and Iraq. But when mm-hmm. you look at, you know, almost every third world nation you've got problems that are either on the non-governmental scale where you have like you know cartels or terrorist organizations or you've got unrest in mali like it gets pretty wild when you 
take a few minutes and look at, you know, what's going on globally. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And being, being in special forces, especially when you were, when you were in, you'd probably be more likely to be involved in those situations than a, a regular line grunt or something, I would think. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you're going to like the war on terror was the main game. Um, mm-hmm. But like you in, in those groups had to maintain a presence in those areas. And so there are, there had always been dudes in Eastern Europe and Africa and, you know, um, the Pacific Rim and South America. And it didn't get the attention, obviously, that, you know, it, the global war on terror did. But those guys were still exposed to, you know, some of the crazy stuff that we don't really hear too much about very often. Mm-hmm. And what's weird is it's not even necessarily combat, but you're training a host nation army to go out and do that. And, and what's really interesting is, you know, you lead a platoon of dudes in Africa to go out and fight this enemy element on a border and you're not able to go and fight with them, but you're at a base that they're, you know, it's basically like their stopover. Okay. They go out, they fight, they come back and provide you information. And, you know, 10 or 15 of their, their guys that died in that conflict. And it kind of like, Hmm. you know, hits you in a very similar way that if you had been there in some senses has, right? Like you, you know, the guys that you just trained, you know, you lost 15 of them and it's like, well, shit, I wish I could go out and do that. And so it's interesting to, uh, you know, in the non-global war and terror sense, like ha- still see that weird proximity to combat that a lot of SF dudes are still kind of dealing with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Do you, do you think like you were talking the group comes back and some guys didn't. Do you think that hits you harder having having been in that situation and being able to participate? And then now your your hands are kind of tied, so to speak? I think there's definitely some form of like, I don't want to call it survivor's guilt, but there's definitely that guilt where it is as an, as an American oh, sure. and, a, and most of the dudes that I had, uh, that I had on my team came from some pretty heavy hitting organizations. And so like, you know, those guys had been uh, uh they'd been in iraq during you know the dark times when they where there were houses blowing up and dudes you know special operations elements losing you know tens of guys on hits and so mm, they got yeah. super frustrated because you know they trained these guys to go fight and then they would have uh you know their partner force come back and they'd lost guys and they're you know we'd had a lot of arguments and conversations of mm. why we couldn't go out and do that and the global implications of it you know and the issues of you know, why, why we can't do, you know, why we can't go out and fight with these guys because, you know, how awful would it look to lose an American in Africa when, you know, people right. don't even know we're there, right? It's right. just this weird dynamic that you have to educate a dude that's just been, you know, stomping asses in Afghanistan for the last five or six years, right? right. It's like, yeah, why not? Be- we used to do this all the time. And they're like, eh, but we have a, <laughs> you know, a unique situation. And that, you know, that's probably the most officery thing to do is try and you know convince a dude to do a job that you know you kind of wish you could too it's like i wish i could go out and do that with those guys but you know we're all going to get fired if we go out and try and get our gun on yeah Hmm. um a lot of or i would think i'm I'm not everybody but it my impression would be that a lot of people kind of view airborne as as kind of not quite, not maybe not exactly special forces, but kind of a step above, you know. Um, yeah. So since you already were in airborne, what were some of the differences between airborne 
and then the special forces um, environment. Oh gosh, so stuff. Yeah, so if you go, if you look at like a regular eighty-second line unit, you've got like an infantry platoon um, and a company, and so uh, you know, in terms of mission-wise, the eighty-second or you know, uh, any infantry platoon is kind of your generic combat arms element. The 82nd's job is to uh, seize airfields, and the Ranger Regiment can do that too. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Special Forces mission is a mixture of unconventional warfare and foreign internal defense. And so what it basically really boils down to is we train guerrilla forces to fight or resist uh, belligerent nations, and we do it on behalf of American interests, right? And so the best examples like Vietnam or training um, Colombians to fight the FARC. And the counter of unconventional warfare is foreign internal defense, where we go and train a friendly host nation military to uh, combat um, insurgent or foreign military elements, which is, mm-hmm. you know, we go to Niger or Mexico and we train their, you know, their friendly nation military to fight the cartel or fight ISIS. So that's basically what SF's job is. Um, they're trainers, like historically they've been trainers um, since the global war on terror, because most of these guys came from units and they become, or sorry, not didn't just come from units. They came from combat arms units. Mm-hmm. And they became masters in their craft. They did a lot more direct action stuff, which you would usually see infantry units or um, uh, even SEALs in some respects or uh, Ranger Regiment do. And we did it on a much smaller scale. So we'd have like alpha bases or VSOs, village stability locations. And we'd, you know, kind of be in this austere environment with some uh, peppering of infantry dudes. And we'd go out and know try and bring stability to these areas or try and uh, fight the insurgents within these areas and so the mission set for sf guys is it can be really really broad or it can be really really finite depending on the environment we're in and the you know the problem set that we're basically presented Mm. and the you know so there's that's kind of that's kind of the mission difference so the structure of it um, is usually so an infantry company, uh, you know, has uh, three platoons plus a uh, a weapon section, like a mortar section, and they have a headquarters and element. Mm-hmm. A special forces company has six ODAs, and each ODA is a team or considered a team. Uh, you've got a team leader, the second in charge is a warrant officer, you've got a team sergeant, then you have two guys from each MOS, and the MOSs are weapons, engineering, uh, mm. med, medical, and communications, and then you also have an intel sergeant. So you ha- so okay. the other interesting thing is, so like let's assume an ODA is like a platoon, um, everybody in an ODA is basically like a, it's a platoon whatever their platoon comparison is on steroids. So instead of a lieutenant as the PL, it's a captain. Instead of a, mm, um, okay. s- you know, a sergeant first class, it's a master sergeant. You're second in charge. You know, you really don't have one in a platoon other than your, you know, platoon sergeant, but you actually have another officer, which is a warrant officer. And then everybody on that team is usually no lower than the rank of staff sergeant. And so you've got guys that, Mm. you know, in the regular army could either be sergeant majors or first sergeants or at the very least squad leaders kind of acting as a team leader or, you know, the most basic unit in that team environment. And so you've got a, a, a real wealth of knowledge on a team where 
in a platoon, you know, your, your, um, you know, your head shed, so to speak, is basically your platoon sergeant and your team leader on an ODA. It's more like an octopus. It's just kind of spread out everywhere. That's actually kind of a good comparison. I just thought of that. Right. Um, Right. And, and, and even, you know, how you view planning and how you employ everything is just kind of, it's a little bit more roided up. So, you know, when mm. you're plan as a team, as a team plans, they, they use the military decision-making process, which is a multi-step planning process where a platoon, you know, does the op order and troop leading procedures, which is just basically, you know, preparation for an operation. So it's, it's a lot more in it's, I wouldn't say the word is intense, but it's just a lot more time consuming and it requires a lot more critical thinking than uh, kind of reaction that it would take in a platoon. And they test that and they evaluate a lot of that uh, as you go through the Q course. And so th- those are kind of the two things that set it apart. And it's hmm. it becomes an even more unique situation hmm. because there's, um, you know, there's a, there's not really many other elements across the Department of, of Defense that do that do UW. A lot of dudes do direct action and they kick doors and they blow shit up. Almost everybody else does that, but there's kind of only one element that does unconventional warfare that does training guerrillas and does this whole teaching thing, and it's um, Green Berets that do it. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I just I just realized. Um, were you in the eighty second? No, no, I was in the 101st. Okay, okay. Yeah. Good, because I, I was first, I, long story short, <laughs> I thought I was all confused, and I was looking back at the email, I was like, wait, did he say 82nd? I was like, nah. I, was I spent, okay, all right, cool. I spent cool. a good yeah. amount of time at Bragg, just because that's where all the training for the Q course and selection is, and then mm-hmm. I was at Bragg after 7th group, and so it just kind of kept me, you know, I, I, I was never in the 82nd, but I got a lot of neighborly love from them, okay. so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> so, so to speak. Yeah. Emphasis on uh love. <laughs> neither neighborly or love. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. I bet. All right. Hmm. Um one yeah, I was wondering you mentioned um but before we started recording, or you, you emailed me about the uh um your your thoughts on the civilian perception of combat and PTSD. And I was really curious what you, what you had about that, what your thoughts were. Yeah, it's, man, that's, that's a, it's a weird slippery slope because I think there's definitely a lot of dudes out there that have a form of PTSD and even dudes that probably don't think they do in some sense, Mm -hmm. probably relive some circumstances in their head that they've seen playing out. And that, and that, and there's plenty of people that haven't seen combat in the military that also have PTSD and there's Mm. people that have served in the military that are victims of PTSD because of other circumstances completely unrelated to even deploying. And so like, it's this really weird layered onion of a lot of crazy issues that have a habit of manifesting themselves a lot of times very differently within people. And I think because initially, um, you know, the way we viewed returning veterans in the way we viewed PTSD, and I think it's gotten a little bit better, but usually it's just like, oh, he's got this, he's got PTSD. Like, first of all, it's this like concept that he's damaged. And then the second mm. thing is like, is he prone to violence? Right. And mm-hmm. at first I was like, that's definitely not the case. Like, you know, I, pe- people are far more educated now when it comes to the military because we've been at war for 20 years. Uh, and what's really weird is like, there's some people that, have just kind of lived in the post nine 11 world and, you know, 
thank the military, but haven't really taken the time to educate themselves on, you know, what PTSD looks like when it manifests or whatever. And so it's still like, mm-hmm. I hate saying it's stereotypical, but there's this like stereotypical civilian reaction of like, oh, he's got this. This means he's going to like fly off the handle. Sure. On the counter side too, though, is, I, you know, I think a lot of people, not a lot of people, there are definitely people that are taking advantage of that stigma to their benefit. And it's really easy to fake a lot of the um, symptoms, so to speak, of PTSD to the point where if you have the credentials to say that you got it, right? So like, oh, I was deployed and I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I was, I saw a dead body, right? Or you reported that you saw a dead body or, you know, you saw something happen. Uh, it's really hard to basically tell somebody it's like no motherfucker you didn't you know you don't have this you're just using this for your benefits mm. but you can definitely tell sure. based on interactions with a lot of people mm. that they you know they've they're kind of faking the funk um there are definitely do this do though there are though definitely some dudes uh that have to you know kind of face their demons every day um and i think you see a lot i mean the veteran community has a massive issue with suicide. I mean, active duty, mm. the military in general just has a massive sure. suicide issue. Yeah. And their only response really is like, you know, don't be sad and don't kill yourself. And it doesn't really work out very well. Um, and I think that's kind of indicative of the amount of people that are probably suffering in silence from uh, a lot of demons and a lot of issues that they've kind of brought home in some respects. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, w- I uh, recently heard a fella talk about um, his his concern about he a veteran. He was con- his concern about how the how suicide in the military was presented is that it kind of um, it the publicity of it in the public eye kind of encourages veterans to embrace that as a persona and uh, excuse me not embrace um but it kind of it can breed that in their mind oh yeah yeah so he he was encouraging uh vets to to not focus on that but instead focus on who you are as a person and not the statistics that you might be a part of but instead succeed in life and i think kind of interesting yeah. I want to say like it, it it's an anomaly too cuz when it happens it happens in like clumps. Um and I don't know if this hmm. if it's anecdotal. I I mean I, mm-hmm. I I I have not seen any statistics that say it. But I feel like when when that happens in or in an organization like you almost see as like a rash of it. And I unfortunately the closest mm. anecdote I have is like um is quitting. So when you see people in a really tough, stressful situation and you see one person quit, it's never one person. Ranger school, oh, sure. selection, whatever, you, you have one dude quit and it's like a, a rash of, of, of quitters. Now, it's, I mean, that's not, a, it's not an appropriate or necessarily good comparison, but I feel like there's um, kind of a similar calling card where, um, I mean, I've, I saw it in seventh group where one dude took his life and then after, and then literally a week after it was another guy. And then two days after it's another guy. And it was like, holy shit, this is an issue. Mm -hmm. And I think the unfortunate thing is we've never really, the military has never really treated mental health in a critical eye. And it's, and it is hard because 
so much of your job is predicated on your ability to maintain your clearance and your ability to be a functioning soldier. And if you're taken out of the fight, it's like the stigma of you being a shitbag. And it's like, well, I don't want to be a shitbag. So I'll deal, mm. I'll basically, you know, bury these problems. Um, and mm. it really, I don't want to say it hasn't changed, but it hasn't gotten better to the point where it's, a, it's, we're completely clear that stigma. Most commanders will say, you know, it's not a stigma anymore. But if you still see dudes losing your clearance and you still see guys that are that kind of get put in this limbo, it's like, you know, you see it as this weakness. And then the problem is, mm. is obviously it just continues to perpetuate and continues to get worse. And then you have guys killing themselves. And then, if, you know, then you have commands losing their shit over, you know, what's going on. And it's just this like wicked cycle of, you know, how do we fix this problem? And, you know, I definitely mm. don't know the answer to it, but there's it's obviously a problem. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. And, and it's far reaching to the effects like you're saying. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> hmm. And you see yeah. it in every community, right? You see SEALs, you see this operator syndrome hitting a lot of guys in special operations because they ate a lot of charges, uh, you know, breaching rooms and stuff. And you've got guys that are having, you know, serious heavy metal deficiencies, not deficiencies. They've got heavy metal traces in their body, you mm, know, and so yeah. you, like you've got this. You know, I think you have a really weird underlying health crisis that will probably bloom in the next 20 years. And mm. it will be, I think it'll be on par with Agent Orange. I think you'll see, and it, it'll be much more prevalent in the special operations community, but just the burn pits and a lot of the exposure dudes had to deal with in the Middle East too will just kind of, it'll generally, I think it's going to rear its ugly head in the next decade or so when guys get older and more broke. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I have wondered about that. Maybe you don't, if you have any thoughts on it, um, the, the increase in the public eye of, of PTSD and all these things, like, has that never happened in the past? You know, I mean, people have been fighting wars forever. Yeah. Um, maybe the modern warfare is of a different, maybe a different style. Um, but why, why the recent increase in, publicity well it's you know it's a common you think or well i think it's i think it's a product of history too so that's actually a really interesting question because when you look at each major war or you look at like a a large enough conflict where you can look at um ptsd and it's you know and and how it manifests itself i don't know a lot about world war one in terms of ptsd other than just like shell shock was a big thing and it Mm, was mm -hmm. you know genuinely terrifying and i think a lot of dudes in world war one just either like came home fucked up or they didn't world war ii was interesting because there's a few veterans that talk about before they before they got to england or before they got into theater they were on a ship for weeks you know with each other Mm, and kind mm -hmm. of just like you know broing out on this ship and then after the war they got put back on the ship and they like had time to decompress and they had time to talk to each other and figure their shit out and like almost, mm. you know, absorb what had actually happened. And that isn't sure. to say that dudes didn't come back completely fucked up and, you know, still relive a lot of their monsters. But there's definitely something to be said about, you know, spending two weeks on a ship with dudes that you just came back from combat with and like kind of decompressing. And there's a few instances uh, where guys talk about that, uh, World War II vets talk about that. Vietnam is a really good example of just like, you know, uh, of a complete lack of um, 
compassion, not compassion, maybe empathy or, or the mm-hmm. need to understand PTSD. And that's why you see, you know, the soldiers that served in Vietnam is kind of just this like lost generation of soldier where, you know, they're dealing with PTSD now, but it's, or it's being dealt with now, but it's far too late to address. And so a lot of these guys are, you know, their peers are either dead or living with their own demons and they're not able to really reconnect. And, you know, these are a lot of the dudes that you go to the, um, you know, foreign legion, you go to a, a, a military bar with and kind of have a conversation with and, you know, realize these dudes are Vietnam vets and, you know, they mm-hmm. came home and got spat on. And so it's like this, you know, that dynamic, there's PTSD was obviously a thing, but it just wasn't, you know, the, nobody really gave two shits about those guys. Sure. And here I think sure. because, you know, it's this post nine 11, um, you know, thank you for your service, uh, support the troops environment. You see a lot of people that are head nodding. Yeah. 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 We need to handle this PTSD situation. And I think it's done in, in, in good spirits, like with the effort of hoping that they can support it. And mm, then when you, sure. you know, you look at it, it's like, well, I don't, but I don't know how to help it. Right. And it's like, you know, we want to help the soldiers, you know, show us how to help the soldiers. And so like, I think each generation gets, it's kind of whack at how we take care of it. And I'd say we're doing a better job than a, a lot of, you know, a lot of generations before us. But I also think it's, totally predicated on circumstances, right? We don't have that opportunity to come back, you know, and hang out on a boat with our dudes and figure out, you know, what we just saw. Additionally, mm. this war, you know, you would go over there for six months to a year, you'd come back home for a year, and then you go back six months to a year. And it was almost like this roller coaster of stress, you know, where you'd mm. three months out, you'd be, sure. you know, shit in your pants because you're going back to Iraq. And then you go to Iraq and then you kind of go back down, down the slope and you chill out for a little bit and then you're about to go back up. And it's this like, you know, this ebb and flow of wildness. And you could definitely tell dudes that had higher tempos in terms of, you know, they'd be gone for six months. They'd be home for six months. They'd be gone for six months. You know, their families mm. had either just completely collapsed because they just couldn't, they were not sustainable. Yeah. Or dudes that just, you know, basically live in this weird, you know, social limbo where they never really had enough time to recollect on what had happened and by that time they'd already you know they basically start a whole another layer of trauma <laughs> on top of what they had just dealt with mm. so i think you you know you'll see i i think you'll see smatterings of you know kind of dudes have that have that world war ii moment where they go back home and they talk to their buddies and they figure out what's happening on the downtime and then you'll probably see dudes that have that kind of vietnam ptsd where it's just this layer upon layer upon layer of you know trauma i i th- yeah, I I tend to agree that it's something important to to talk about and be aware of. Um, I've I've often wondered, and maybe you have input, what what your thought is personally when when you hear about civilians, non military members, um, getting talking about it or being concerned about it or whatever. Do you, do you think? Like you were saying, it comes from a good place. Do you? Th- yeah. How? Hmm. I'm trying to I'm trying to think how to phrase my question. But what is that? <laughs> kind of, that's pretty much your response to it. Just that, depending on the person, obviously. But um, it's something that that can be appreciated, but maybe they they don't really quite understand. What yeah. Well, about. and I, it, you know, and it, it that even varies within the military, right? Like. 
You know, you have guys, even in the community, you've got guys that have seen some pretty crazy stuff. And if you, you know, if you really haven't lived it or you haven't lived close to it, then it's really, really hard to fathom. Mm. And, you know, it's even as, even as a Green Beret, when I think about seeing some of the stuff my peers have done or that guys that I know have done and they explain it, it's like they're, it's like a illustration of a movie. You can imagine this happening, <clears throat> but it's really difficult mm. to put yourself in that mindset of where it's happening. Right. And it's like, Oh yeah, I I've been shot at, I've been blown up. I can imagine this thing happening, mm-hmm. but it's like, man, you, you can't really explain the fear of actually thinking you're going to get overrun and either captured or killed unless you've been in that environment. And then, so like, you know, that's, that's within the SF community. And then within, you know, the military community, how do you explain to somebody how terrifying it is to have, you know, a truck thrown 40 feet and have doors blown open and dudes hanging out? And it's like, you can imagine that, Hmm. yeah. but the fear you experience is very, you know, it's very different than just like knowing what happens. And so it's, you know, it, 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 it's just a, it's, it's, uh, you know, from, from a civilian standpoint, it is reassuring that people uh kind of appreciate the uh the gravity of like what this what you know what it does or how it manifests but it's it's so difficult you know for anybody to kind of explain it and that's kind of the weird thing too is like you know how do you explain Hmm. to a psychologist that's never handled this he's like well this is clearly a terrifying situation it's like yes of course Hmm. it is however like you know that the you know it's it's hard to explain you know it's like self-diagnosing how you you know, uh, stop living through your trauma or stop, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) how do you stop being sick? It's like, I don't know, take some vitamin C and I guess get better. Like, you know, how do you get over this issue that you, you know, you clearly need help getting over? It's like, Hmm. you probably have to find people in your community that have been through those things. And, you know, hopefully you can live through it together, which I think, you know, when you look at World War II or you look at veterans that have done that, that's kind of what they do is they've, you know, find like-minded individuals, they get in, you know, circles or whatever, where they're, you know, checking up on each other and building relationships and they can kind of understand the, the, you know, the avenue that they're coming from in terms of where their traumas mm-hmm. come from. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I've heard that guys, some guys, when they get out, um, have, have gotten a house together with other guys for yep. the military. And they say that, that that's been re- just remarkably helpful. Um, yeah just like you're saying it, it if they don't have in world war ii they had say two weeks in a boat with nothing else but other guys around them whereas you know if they get back um and live in the same house it's not as intensive a time but if you if you're living together for a year or so um you kind of have the same experience of just like decompressing and right and you can kind of voice your that's the weird thing is you know it, you you can voice whatever occurred or you can kind of have a conversation with somebody that knows what it feels like. And so you don't feel like their response is contrite or fabricated. Right. It's like, you know, I, I've been there. I've seen that. Like, I know how that happens. And so you have kind of an already, you know, established connection with somebody that has those experiences. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. As I think as a civilian, that's been, um, one of the maybe most valuable or biggest things that I've realized is um, 
there's a lot of things I just, I can't relate to, you know, right. and to, and to pretend to is more insulting than to acknowledge that I can't, you know? Right. Um, so I've, I, I can understand how if, if I'm talking to a vet and I'm like, Oh, what was it like? They're just like, I don't want to talk to you. You know, right, I don't want right. to talk to you. So, <laughs> you, you weren't there. Shut up, dude. <laughs> you know? Well, and that's, that's the so, funny thing too, is like, you know, I, I, I know dudes that are like, you know, you know, how do I explain this? Or I don't want to explain this. I don't want to talk about this. And mm -hmm. I got a really interesting, um, when I was getting out, the guy that, uh, you know, my commander at the time was basically like, tell your story, you know, t tell, tell whatever story you can to people. So they at least understand what, you know, what they're, <laughs> what they're getting for mm. their tax dollars. But what he was saying is like, you know, it's almost your obligation to tell these people, what your experience was because it's not just your experience, right? Like it's part of the, you know, for, uh, if I'm being really corny, it's like part or part of the American experience, right? Where it's like, I'm not just some mm. dude that went over and volunteered to go fight a war. Like I was doing it on behalf of, you know, a lot of other people that couldn't or didn't want, or, you know, didn't want to now or whatever, but it's, it's worth telling those mm. stories because you don't just get the war story you know, you, you get the story about the cook that sat in the chow hall for the whole deployment and like builds a larger picture of, you know, what really happens in war as opposed to just like, you know, Black Hawk down all the time or the outpost mm. all the time or this like experience. So it is worth knowing a lot of that stuff. And sometimes you just get these really interesting, funny gems of, you know, human interaction that are just in this weird, you know, military environment that don't have anything to do with war. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, people will will readily say that war, uh, kind of like flying, is is uh, ninety nine percent boredom and one percent sheer terror. But then when they're talking 100%. to a vet, <clears throat> right. when they're talking to a vet, they just want to hear about the terror and yeah, and right, the, the exciting moments. And it's like, what about the rest of my life? <laughs> yeah, right. I <laughs> ate Girl I, Scout I, cookies, lifted weights, and looked at porn. That was about it. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Huh. Yeah, no different than any other normal human being. Right. Right. <laughs> what one one thing I try to ask everybody, assuming assuming there's people listening to this that are of the right age and are willing to take advice, um, if a kid was to ask you, you know, hey, I want to join the military, what's your advice? Uh, what would what would you give them? What would you say? I'd, I you know honestly I I um there's there's some people that that would that would advise against it, um, you know, for whatever mm -hmm. political mm -hmm. reasons or what have you. Honestly, sure. I'm, I'm still all about it. Uh, people, you know, you're always going to have issues with administrations or organizations. Um, but there's very few experiences that will build the relationships and brotherhood that the military will. And even if you never deploy, there's something to be said about an environment where you're mutually suffering, whether it's, you know, just hey, suffering in the rain in a training exercise or basic training yeah. that kind of builds yep. a relationship that you can't really um, replicate in the civilian world. And I think just even if you just get exposed to those experiences, you're 
you're going to come out of an organization or you have the potential to come out of that organization much more mature and with a lot more kind of context of what suffering or like work is than a lot of civilians. So I, I would recommend it. Mm. I would also say like, if you're going into it, have a clear picture of what you want, right? Like try like any other job, you know, go in with an idea of what you want, you know, what do you want to be? What mm. do you feel like you're going to get out of it? Because so many people go in and they're like, well, I just want to serve my country because it's the honorable thing. And while that is those things, like when you leave, the army is not going to give two shits about you. They don't care. I mean, they honestly mm. don't give two shits about sure. you when it comes to, you know, your, you know, your job or whatever. Like when you leave, they're not going to be like, oh man, I really wish you know, would stay here. There's no like, you know, the army's not going to beg for you to come back. And so what I would say is get what you can out of that experience and get what you can out of that job. Um, and then when you're not happy with it, you know, move on. Uh, but there's, I mean, there's a lot of opportunity to do things that, you know, you just can't do in the civilian world. I mean, if you want to jump out of airplanes or, hmm. you know, if you want to shoot uh, in long range competitions and, you know, fly, basically fly around the world and train different militaries. You can do that. I mean, you have to meet the physical and mental prerequisites and you've got to jump through hoops, but like it, you know, it is worth it. If you want to do these things, if you want to do them enough, you know, it mm -hmm. will become worth it if you want to do it, which is, you know, I, I, I couldn't have been happier in the profession that I was to, to get any of those opportunities. So, and if that's what people want to do, I would 100% support it. You know, if they yeah. want to be a cook or they want to, you know, work in the NBC world or they want to be a an engineer, like, more power to them. We need plenty of those people and those jobs are awesome as well. And if that's mm -hmm. what they want, then, like, you know, it's a good environment to, to work in for sure. Yeah. yeah. What moment would you say you look back, you remember the most? Do you have, like, a a moment or maybe an experience or... Something that, that when you look back on your time in, like that's the defining moment, or was it just more the several accomplishation? Probably, probably the most recent one. Um, it's probably the most memorable. Well, at least at least that I would say is like kind of um, was the pinnacle of my like what made me feel like a green beret the most. I guess <laughs> that sounds really weird, but. Yeah, so uh, we were in Africa, and we had been there. We are probably midway through the deployment, and we have watched a lot of do. So let me build a little context first. So I was at a base mm -hmm. where a couple years back there were some third group soldiers that had been killed in an ambush, um, and there was a huge uh, blowout over it. Uh, there were a lot of commands that got blamed. People got thrown under the bus and these, these guys basically got told like, you know, your men died for lack, you know, because it was your fault, uh, which it wasn't the case. And the team leader got screwed over and a lot of dudes got screwed over. Mm -hmm. And this area in Africa, uh, so we were at the same base that these guys were at. And so a lot of parts, parts of this base had been memorials for these men that had been lost. The African military there had um, held this team and these men that had sacrificed their lives in very high regard. And it, 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 because it was in Afghanistan, it was viewed as this like very taboo incident, right? Like 
you know, first of all, what are dudes doing in this place? Why are they dying? You know, what the hell's going mm. on here? It was yeah. kind of a lot of questions that were getting asked. And guys that were on my team that had also been active duty had been in that group, uh, in that organization where those men had been killed. And so everybody came in with like one, uh, very cautious of like the environment. And two, we really wanted to, uh, kind of bring the guys that had done this to justice. <clears throat> and we mm. also had a lot of French partners and my goal as the team leader, cause I, um, was a very senior officer or captain at the time. Uh, I'd been on two other special forces teams. The guys that I'd been serving with, uh, my two senior leaders have been on teams before. And so we knew what we needed to do kind of in order to be successful. And our constraints really were, you know, the appetite to let our, our for our command to, to let us go out and do these things because they were still worried, you know, because guys had been killed previously, you know, what's going to happen to these teams. So that kind of illustrates like the, the lack of comfort of having Americans go out and actually, you know, shoot bad guys on behalf of America or on mm. behalf of the mm -hmm. African government. And so we were really stuck uh, training these Nigerian special operations to go out and do these things. And these guys, these poor devils have been getting killed by the bushel. So before we got there, <clears throat> there'd been a bunch of bases where that had gotten overrun by ISIS uh, 30 to 60 guys had died each time this had happened and it had been happening for, you know, a year plus. Hmm. And so we were going into a situation where these guys were getting shellacked by this, you know, terrorist organization. And oh, by the way, as Americans, you really can't go out and fix this problem. You have to train these guys to do it. And it was like, oh, this is hmm. the perfect, you know, green beret problem. <clears throat> so halfway through, We'd been training these guys and they'd had small wins here or there where they'd been able to kind of fight, um, you know, fight and win. And it'd been these small kind of like confidence targets that they'd been able to succeed. And then finally, one day, these guys basically got a really big win. And I mean, it was big enough to the point where it got, you know, media attention and attention from the French. And it was mm. it, it compounded, you know, within that time frame. It got blown out to everybody. The, you know, my command understood it. Everybody understood it. And then sequentially every week after that, it had basically, you know, turned this molehill into a mountain. And for us, by the time we left, we went from watching these guys die, you know, by mm. 30 before we got there to they were inflicting those types of casualties upon the enemy. And oh, by the way, the French wanted to start supporting these guys and the French started participating in these operations when they wanted, when originally they wanted to have nothing to do with it. And we had this weird, you know, post-colonial relationship where the French didn't want to speak to the Nigerians and the Nigerians didn't want to have anything to do with these white devils. And at the end of everything, like we literally left and it was like, you know, leaving an actual functioning, you know, organization and family, where these hmm. guys, we were able to hand it off to the other team. And then that team, you know, compounded on our successes. And when we were looking in the news, like I still look in the news to just kind of see what's going on there. Cause I, I do have kind of a soft spot for that country. You know, I see the success that my little box had kind of done well in. Mm. And so that was kind of, you know, that's really heartening to see that. And then, you know, seeing the commanders, that were there like genuinely asking us if we would come back. And it's one of the few times, you know, I'd, I've trained a lot of partner forces. I've trained Colombians, I've trained Hondurans, 
And a lot of times it's like, you know, thanks for coming out. Thanks for letting us shoot the ammo. We appreciate it. You know, yay America. And these guys were literally like, you know, when are you guys going to come back? We need your help. Like they, I had never seen a more gracious host than the Nigerians that we got to train. And so it was really unique to have Hmm. guys that wanted us there to do that job, to learn and develop. And then, you know, to see them grow up and, you know, kick ass was, it's, it was such a unique experience and it was definitely kind of the highlight of my career because i got to do it with you know a bunch of really good dudes as well Mm -hmm. yeah yeah Hmm. how would you how would you uh say that being in the military affected your you as a person your your life (laughs) i mean it's 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 pervaded my, it's, you know, it's kind of pervaded my entire existence. So I, Mm -hmm. you know, I got it in 2006, Yeah, you know, and I've, I've, I've dealt with it or it's been a part of me since then. And it's, I mean, it's, it, it, especially in special operations, it becomes a part of your identity and it becomes really hard to kind of separate it because it also Mm. kind of latches on to your psyche and your ego. And there's a lot of things you do on behalf of this, you know, like conceited pride, right? Like I'll be damned mm-hmm. if I can't run, you know, a two minute or a, you know, a, a, a 1232 mile. Right. Cause I, cause I'm right. a, I'm a green beret. Right. Um, in, in the law, in the grand scheme of things though, like it has helped me kind of become, it's, it, it's helped me become a better father and it's helped me become a, you know, it's, it's definitely made me less empathetic in some times and made me more Mm. empathetic in others. And it's really weird because it's like, you know, you don't really give two shits about weakness, right? You don't really care about, you know, whether something hurts or whether something's uncomfortable, but at the same time, you know, you can, you, you, because you've seen suffering and you've seen pain, you can kind of understand that like, you know, you, 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 you hmm. feel a little bit more for people that are in pain and suffering on, on kind of a more genuine scale, sure. <clears throat> but like, sure. yeah, it, it, um, I don't know, it, it brings a little bit more context to like what stress is too. And so like, you know, a deadline at work really isn't much of a big deal when, you know, you've got to stay up late and you're used to staying up late. And so it makes, you know, what most people think are issues seem smaller, um, and at the same time, it, it, it really, uh, it kind of retards your ability to read between the lines sometimes, you know, in the military that it's, most people are not, um, they're mm. very blunt and they're very direct. Right. right? Yep. And so most military dudes who are even successful in the civilian job world will just be like, look, I'm a straight shooter. If I'm, if something's messed up, I need you to tell me because we really lack a lot of like that you know, corporate America tact where they say a thing and they don't really mean it or they mean it, but it just doesn't interpret the way that you think it does. It's like this velvet dagger. Right. And so it's just like, Hey man, just tell me I'm fucking up because I don't know what you're saying kind of personality. So, you know, it's that kind of generic military thing. I think because I've, I've always had kind of a weird sense of humor that it's, that it's outlasted my militariness. And so it's allowed me to kind of better, transition the civilian world and in special operations mm. because there's it's not the lines between enlisted and officers so blurred and especially in special forces your job is to build rapport and ingratiate yourself to 
you know, people from a different nation or a different culture, you kind of build this innate empathy. And so when you go into the civilian world, if you are capable of recalling those experiences and applying them to, you know, your everyday life, you, you seem very less like military. Like you kind of take the gun out of conversations. You kind of take like the Mm. tacticalness out of things. You don't seem so much like a, you know, a vet bro or whatever people want to call it. Sure. None of this knife hand pointing, but an ability to have yeah. empathy. Yeah. And you still have huh. it, right? You st- it's, it's still sure. very much there. And people, people mm-hmm. like can still smell it on you, but it's not nearly as like what, you know, when you see a dude that used to be in the Marines, he still has this haircut and this like square jaw and this like very like, you know, this attitude that just like screams Marine Corps or screams mm-hmm. infantry or whatever. Whereas SF dudes are like, <clears throat> I don't know if you just go to REI a lot and you're kind of granola or, <laughs> right. you know, if you just like hang out at breweries, like what are you all about? Like you can kind of ask a few questions and poke and you're like, okay, yeah, you're SF dude. I get it. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. The different uh, kind of cultures that, that are bred through the different branches or the different right. aspects, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Um, any, any questions that you expected that I didn't ask? Oh gosh. (laughs) I I had one person tell me, I forget who it was. They were like, I'm surprised you didn't ask this. And I was like, oh, I didn't even think about that. (laughs) Oh, I always kind of go into these, I always kind of go into these free anyways. Like, um, yeah, I mean, you don't know what you don't know. It's the, I've, I guess, most people ask me about dive school because it's kind of unique in special forces because most of the time SEALs are used to it. So I get a lot of like, you know, mm. how did you end up liking the water because you're in the army question or, uh, you know, like what dive school was like, cause it's usually a pretty rare school that most dudes go to or, you know, that type of route. But it's usually, mm. you know, those are usually the questions I, I get is <laughs> about water. Right. Right. <laughs> did you, yeah. Okay. So did you, I didn't even think about that. Was the school a Navy school or was it who ran, the, who ran the dive school? So the, the school is, so all the safety and procedure is overseen by the Navy. So like, um, because it deals with the water and, uh, you know, it's all the aquatic, sh- aquatic mm-hmm. shit for lack of a better term. The Navy is the one that like builds the procedure, but it's ran by a bunch of army dudes, um, that are just special operations divers. So you have like okay. uh, scuba school in the army and hard hat diving, which is the part of the engineer corps. And then you've got special operations diving, which is kind of like buds light or like, you know, sure. Navy seal light. And I hate that term because it, it doesn't do either of those organizations justice unless, right, unless you right. explain them in detail. <laughs> yes. Everybody's like, offended when you say that. Yeah, or like, you know, when you think of BUDS, you know, SEALs are, uh, you know, they're using it as a method of, like, disabling boats. Like, they're doing their thing in the water, and really all we're doing is just using it as a platform to get from A to B, right? That's like Halo, Mm. or jumping out of airplanes. We're just using one platform to get onto the ground so we can accomplish our mission. Uh, That being said, though, like because it's in the water and it has all this inherent danger, the school itself is like extremely rigorous and it is, I mean, it's 
nothing the army makes you do is usually easy, but it's considered one of the harder schools because of, you know, people's uncomfortability in the water and just the amount of time and fitness you have, the level of fitness that you have to be at. Uh, Mm. So it's not, it is, you know, the Navy oversees it, but it's ran by basically a bunch of sadistic assholes that just want to watch you drown most of the time. Right. (laughs) We we live through this. Now it's your turn. Right. Exactly. (laughs) And it is very much like that. But, interesting part about that school is like and special operations does this really well is they make the school the experience right and so like i can definitely say Mm. you know the end of the q course was the most you know green beret most green beret in nature training i ever had because it was just so well planned and it was so well executed and they had everything i needed in order to kind of like play the game of being a gorilla similarly at dive school i mean you were you lived that life for six weeks they fed you really well they ran your ass off and then they expected you to perform in the water you know in in a zero fail environment and then when you finish Mm. your training or not when at the last day of your training or the last week of your training when you did your final exercise i mean they went full bore you know they tested every mechanism that they trained you in employing and they had you do a you know a 4k offset infill at night with no you know with a drager mm. that had no bubbles with 12 other dudes on a rope and it was like you know you get out of the water or you know and almost any environment in training and you're like holy shit i did this you're like i this is you know, this is what I <laughs> wanted to become. And right. you know, most, they like develop you to be this, you know, whatever in vision, this vision that you thought you, you know, you could attain. And it's like, you know, as long as you keep trudging towards it, you know, for the most part, if, if you're healthy, you can, you know, you, you can achieve it. And it's, it's pretty wild to kind of get there. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, the uh, I guess there's a lot of value in that in that high stress level type of training. Oh yeah, just uh, and also kind of the um, the generational aspect of it. The the you know it was hard for us, and yeah. we want to make sure that it's hard for you so that you can live up to this standard. It's not just you know some sadist enjoying hurting somebody it's like (laughs) look you need to be able to survive in a situation so that we're passing on to you um the what we received oh and that's a really good illustration of like what makes a you know a boss versus a leader or you know whatever uh you know leadership conversation Mm. people want to get into but it's like you know the guys that inflict pain because the excuses that just happened to them are usually guys that like don't understand the context of what stress really is. And usually within our community, it's inflicted because they want to inoculate you Mm. for the rigors of what's going to happen. Right. And so they do the surf torture, you know, at the end of at the midway between your training, because they want you to know if you get messed up by a wave and all the stuff gets ripped off of you, how you can recover without killing everybody or without drowning. And so it's like, man, this is terrifying and I'm getting the shit hazed out of me. But like these guys are doing it for a reason, right? And like all this pain and suffering is done for a reason. And it's like, you know, everybody says like you sweat more in training. So you bleed less in combat and the Mm. good, you know, the good instructors and the good guys that are doing that, like understand and grasp that. And it's definitely in 
this organization, it still exists. I would say in the army for a larger part, I think some of that mentality has gone to the wayside because it hasn't been um, championed enough. And so, you know, they remove hazing out of basic training or they remove hazing out of units or whatever. Mm. And they refer to it as hazing because it's this neg- it has a negative connotation. Sure, sure. And there's plenty of it that does happen unnecessarily. But there's also instances where like it absolutely has to happen and you have to have dudes at fucking suffer uh, because it will, I mean, it not only just builds character, but it builds, you know, this emotion, not emotional callous, eh, fuck it, emotional and mental callous to be able to kind of do that job that is right. know, dirty and unnecessary or necessary. Yeah. And survive yeah. at the end of it. Yeah. Right. Hmm. And maybe come out like not so fucked up, you know? Mm, sure. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Um. Any. Any thoughts or any you want? You have anything you wanted to mention or plug or promote? Oh man, <laughs> I don't really have anything to promote or plug. Okay. Uh, yeah. No, not at all. No, all I, right. I really appreciate yeah. the opportunity to chat, though. Yeah. No, I. I appreciate. It. Yeah. Like. Uh, yeah. It. Uh, this was kind of last minute, so <laughs> you got me out of a spot. I've, I've, uh, I, don't, I usually don't get meta on the on the show, but I'm I'm right up tight with uh, I'm recording right before I release. Let's put it that way. So OK, nice. <laughs> this, this is fantastic to, that you're able to jump oh, on. Good. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's. Uh, I always enjoy enjoy just having a good conversation and, and learning more. I mean, like this is this is why I do it really is. I'm I'm pretty selfish and I uh, just enjoy talking to people and and kind of getting a viewpoint on on what it's like to be in the military. So it, I always I I do enjoy uh, kind of taking the mystique out of it because it's mm, you know when you, sure. when people think about special operations they think about like you know the Osama bin Laden hit or they think about Delta Force or they think about you know just like sure. cloak and dagger stuff and you know there's there's nothing. I mean, if anybody ever says like, oh, it's classified, like my, you know, my, my military profile is classified. You're like, this person is probably full of shit. And right. really it's, it's the, you know, the, most people go into the military because it's a sense, it's a sense of patriotism. And a lot of times, you know, even, even in post 9-11, even after they saw what was going on in Iraq, you know, they, it's hard to grasp what you're going to be doing day to day and like we'd said before you know (laughs) if you're in the infantry you think you're going to be suffering in some building in a firefight for the next 15 months or 12 months or whatever but really like when you're you know when you're back home you're waking up at five in the morning and going for runs then you're going to ranges and you're kind of just doing like you know regular bro stuff or you know what your job is and then when you deploy it's really not entirely all that much different aside from you know the occasional terrifying moment Mm, it's mm -hmm. you know it 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 is hard to uh kind of take that mystique away or explain in greater detail if you know if all people know is black hawk down or you know crazy military movies or whatever sure and it's it gets the i mean it's it is a weird experience because it's such a microcosm that veterans are right like you've got some veterans that are totally against the military when they get out and it's a fucking you know they view it as this sham And, uh, it's nothing but a, you know, like I did war crimes and I've, you know, I had to perpetuate these war crimes and I dealt with these guys. And it's just like, you have so many 
you have a such a strange spectrum of individuals that come out of these organizations that you would never see in, you know, I don't know, working for some job in corporate America. But in the army, it's this, or the military in general, it's just this weird conglomeration of personalities. And it's so interesting to listen to podcasts or listen to other people and see where their experiences uh, arose from out of the military and where they've kind of grown as people, which is mm. just a, it's a fucking wild thing to think about because, you know, there's plenty of green berets that I, you know, vigorously disagree with politically uh, or morally or whatever. But like mm-hmm. we've, we basically did the same thing, right? We, we, we followed the same career track and then wh- where we got to was just basically a individual experience or an outlook on what we had done even in the same situation potentially. And it's just such an interesting way to think about, you know, my, a clone of me could be completely different because he saw this firefight as, you know, this unnecessary violent action upon innocent people or dirt farmers or whatever the fuck, which mm-hmm. is just such a weird thing to consider. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. What <laughs> I, I, I was just wondering, um, you mentioned, uh, like Black Hawk down all that. Do you think, um, Maybe you don't have an opinion on this, but what do you think like war movies overall have been good or bad for culture or for uh, maybe maybe I should say for people's. Well, I'm sure you're going to say it's bad for people's understanding of the military because that's kind of what you're referring to. But just like for for America in general, do you think um, war movies have have had a positive or negative are more positive or more negative impact overall. It's really strange because there's it 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 varies. It's like a gradient and it really depends on the movie. There's some that are really good mm. uh for the community and there's some sure. that are just like, you know, uh like an iota short of propaganda. And like when you look at t- 12 strong with uh, Chris Hemsworth or whatever and it's like these green braids mm. that had infiltrated into Afghanistan and it's such a travesty to have that movie in the in the way that it is because you have the officer and you know who that is because he's the star and then the rest of those ncos and those dudes nobody knows who the fuck they are you don't even Mm. know who the team sergeant is right like you could line those guys up and you're like which one's the team sergeant based off of how you saw this movie and nobody'd be like i don't know in reality that team sergeant and that team leader in that warrant were running that fucking show and you just don't see who the difference is and then you know riding a horse into combat it's just so overdone and what it really should have been was a TV series and it could have broken down the personalities and these, I mean, it could have been like, you know, it really could have been for lack of a better term, a love story to this incident, which is, which changed a lot of American history and mm. uh, could have let you into kind of the life of green berets and how these dudes families interacted and, you know, how they fought this war with literally, you know, 24 dudes, like 12 dudes initially went into Afghanistan and changed the history of that nation with Mm -hmm. some air support and kind words, like, holy shit. And all, you know, all you saw on horse soldiers were these dudes got on horses and did did a few things and blew stuff up. And it's like, man, it's such a disservice to the organization and the men that did that just because, you know, they wanted to make a quick buck or whatever. And then when you look at like um, the outpost, which is a uh, uh, incident in Afghanistan where a couple guys, where one guy won the Medal of Honor and I think one got a silver star. I'm, I'm being a complete shit not remembering, but like you see that and it's, I mean, 
you see the progression of the characters and you see them in kind of like their their unfiltered form and then you see them die and it's like that's as that's probably mm. as real as it gets is like you know you see a dude you like or a dude you hate and it's very like game of thrones in the in, in the sense it's like this is how reality is is like both these dudes one dude you liked and hated both fucking die in this humvee and mm-hmm. this lead this reluctant leader has to make these choices and watch his men die as they're in this untenable situation and the movie ends well or poorly depending on how you view it as like you know these guys just get on a helicopter and fuck off and then they have to relive you know the incident that went on after all this trauma and violence Mm. and you know crazy shit happened so i think that's a great illustration of like how bad it can be um and i love i've always i tout i say this all the time on twitter i think saving private ryan is probably one of the best movies uh war movies and Mm. it spans multiple generations um because uh, not only because i think tom hanks is an amazing actor but like you know you look at the the interaction and you know who the senior nco is you know who the captain is you know the relationship they're supposed to have and you see kind of the you know the interactions evolve across this entire movie and then an additional layer is like every single one of these guys you kind of understand as a person you know you hear their regret and then they relive their regret or their their death is kind of this greek tragedy and it always brings me back to the medic because my dad was a medic and so like i had this like soft spot for medics but mm. you know this medic was sitting in a church and this really unique moment of when he talked about you know he'd his mother would come home and he would pretend he was asleep and he didn't know why but his mom just came in because she wanted to talk and then she'd leave him alone and then as he's dying he's crying out for his mother and it's like the sad subtle irony of like you know this dude realizing his regret upon his hmm. death yeah. And there's a bunch of other ones where um, one of the individuals who's Jewish is, you know, these POWs you're walking by and he's like, you know, showing that he's Jewish. And the irony is, is this dude gets, you know, brutally murdered with a knife with being, you know, being whispered to sleep by this Nazi, you know, as, as he was kind of like flaunting his Judaism. It's just like there's that whole movie is full of these weird, ironic, like Greek tragedy style deaths. And it's just like the, that is, that's hmm. like a swan song or like a you know a, a perfect illustration of kind of how interactions and how like this um s- how sour tragedies are across from or uh, you know exist within our community where like you know it's always the best of us or always the best of the community that are always dying it's never <laughs> never the dudes you want to if that's a more morbid way to say it but like you know sure. it's always the younger you know the team captains or it's always the the team sergeants or the war heroes or like there's, you know, there's no such thing as war heroes. There's just war survivors. The heroes are always the ones that end up fucking dying or whatever, like that kind of mm. mentality. So it is, it is interesting. It really, and it really does depend on, you know, which movie you decide to watch, but there's good ones. And then there's, you know, you can definitely tell which ones are propaganda and Black Hawk Down is, is in the middle of that fine line because it definitely has that kind of propaganda ish personality. Mm. Sure. But at the same sure. time, it, it does, it does a really good illustration of what happened and there's definitely no like pulling punches about, you know, how shitty of a situation that was and how those dudes ended up dying. And like, you know, no, nobody, nobody flew black, flew, flew back screaming, you know, like team America with a flag waving somewhere. Like it was just this like sad, you know, kind of unfortunate ending. Yeah. 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 
yeah i i always enjoy stories more not enjoy that's maybe that's the wrong term um i'm more impacted by stories that even if they're not a specifically a true story they have an element of realism where maybe yeah. the hero does die you know mm -hmm. in, in american movies you know you know that the hero is gonna live to the end right um or else just have a like a really heroic sacrifice that that uh, saves the whole world or something. Right. Whereas in real life, like you're saying, sometimes it's the cool guy that dies and the scumbag goes home, you know, or or something like that. So, yeah, stories like that where there is that tragedy. And you're confronted with it, you're not protected from it. Right. You know? It's almost like a it's almost like its own traumatic movie experience in some senses, which is kinda odd. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I um <laughs> I I have in the past uh asked vets, uh oh, what what's your favorite war movie? And uh, <laughs> I, I quickly learned <laughs> that that's a very civilian thing to say and don't don't say that. <laughs> uh, so, see, I, I yeah. it doesn't bother me too much. I mean I I you know, I I watch them mm -hmm. and I, I you know, it's there's some of them that I just can't stand because you're like, you know, we get the like, oh, the uniform's fucked up, or like that would right. never happen, or that that always exists, and so it's like, you know, you watch Jack Reacher or John Wick or whatever, and it's you just roll your eyes, but usually it's you know, it's 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 like you know, Band of Brothers or um, Saving Private Ryan's really good. I did I mm -hmm. did like the Outpost is kind of you know, it kind of hits a little bit closer. There's hmm. a there's a Hulu special about the team in Africa that had those individuals mm. that died and it's called three, two, one, two unredacted. And it's more of a documentary on what happened. Um, but it is really interesting and it kind of illustrates on the larger term of like how um, commands and special operations kind of interact in those, you know, those environments. So it is good, you know, to kind of see that even though it's not really a war movie. Thank you for listening to this episode of how I embraced the South. If you enjoyed the show, tell a friend. And as my Girl Scout den mother used to say, stay frosty. Oh, the truth. <laughs> like, yeah, you don't talk about Scientology to non-Scientologists, right? Yeah, that's probably what it is. Just they—they they wouldn't understand, anyways. <laughs>